welcome ladies and gentlemen to the second episode of Hikmah History Podcast. I'm really excited for today's guest. Um, I uh, met him recently and we had a brief discussion about his uh, research work and I'm sure you guys are going to be fascinated uh, as much as I am. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to let him introduce himself. Thank you, kindly. Uh, I'm Mohammed Amir Hakimi Pasa. It's now my second year uh, in my PhD and it focuses on Iranian history during the 18th century, specifically the last uh, great Iranian empire, that of Nader Shah, from 1736 till 1747. Okay, that sounds, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, Nader Shah, he's often given like the epithet, like the, the nickname of being like the last Asian conqueror, right? Right, yes. Uh, why, is he, why is he given that nickname? What, what areas did he conquer, other than Persia, I'm guessing? Uh, well, after he uh, ensconced himself on the former Safavid throne, right. and he overtook from the Safavids, uh, Iran, he uh, went directly to eastern, what is now eastern Afghanistan, okay. uh, Kandahar. Right. And from there, he went down to uh, India, probably his most famous campaign, uh, his uh, campaign against Mughal India in 1739. Right. And uh, rather... Brilliantly, he managed to not only defeat the Mughals, but also make them a tributary to his own empire. What was what was brilliant about it? Because we often hear that Nader Shah was like a military genius and right. everything like that. Um, but like, could you go into a little bit more detail into what he did that mean meant that he was brilliant? Well, um, there are so many brilliant things about uh, just the Indian campaign uh, in and of itself. But uh, I think the crowning jewel of the campaign itself, the Battle of Karnal, where Nader took his army of some 50,000 men mm -hmm. uh, against a much, much larger uh, Mughal army, by some accounts six times as large, wow. and uh, in a mere matter of two hours had completely crushed right. the creme de la creme of the Mughal army. Uh, what, how, how did he manage to do that? Because I don't imagine the gap the technological gap would have been that that high. No, not at all. I mean, uh, in terms of technology, the only uh, advantage that perhaps the Iranians had over the Mughals would be um, slightly more maneuverable cannon. Okay. But that wasn't uh, that central to why he won. Yeah. The tactical systems that Nader had introduced uh, many, many years ago, before he even came to the crown, were primarily to explain just his sheer military supremacy, not just against the uh, Mughal Indians, but against pretty much all of his uh, regional rivals, whether it be the Afghan nomads, whether it be the Central Asian Khanats, or even the Ottoman Empire. We see again and again a really astounding uh, one-sided kind of... Uh, record of mm. just Nadarid after Nadarid victory against whoever these rivals are. Okay. So the uh, military reforms, uh, we would have to go back to before he became Shah. And right. That's primarily the reason why he came to power as a military practitioner. I just want to give a little bit of context here because uh, I can't wait until we get into what uh, you tell us more about like the tactical reforms he did but so you're talking about this is in the event of the demise of the Safavid empire in Persia right, right exactly. so you have the Safavids in the 17th century first half Shah Abbas the Great and then after that you have a couple more uh, Shahs uh, Safi and I think Shah Abbas the second and stuff like that and then after that from about like the 1660s onwards it's like a steady I know it's a tele teleological argument but it's like a steady decline towards their demise, right? And then you have in 1722, the right. Afghans come and invade Persia and you have the Battle of Gulnabad. Yes. Right? And so at that moment, can we assume that that's the official end of the Safavids, 1722? Um, it's either 1722 or usually nowadays people date it to Nader overthrowing the Safavids after having restored them. So 1736, which is when he becomes king. Right, right. So the Afghans didn't overthrow the Safavids. Oh, no, they did. They did. But they were restored in, I think, 1730 or 1729, was it? Nader, basically, there was a Safavid restoration. Okay. But it's, I mean... The Safavids, even after Nader, Karim Khan, uh, mm. who came the to Zand. power, yeah, the Zands, 
they didn't rule as Zand kings. One of the most bizarre designations that the Zands get is the Zand dynasty. It was absolutely not a dynasty. I mean, they would tell you that. Uh, Karim Khan ruled uh, in the name of a Safavid king. Mm. I mean, he, he held de facto power. Right. The Safavid uh, was just a figurehead. He was a puppet king. So he had a puppet, a, Saf- a Safavid puppet king that he was trying to represent, Karim Khan Zan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was oh. uh, it was still uh, a Safavid uh, mulk, a Safavid realm, uh, according to Karim Khan uh, himself. That's one thing that throughout history just fascinates me is the concept of legitimacy. Right. How, like, there, there even is a thing which differentiates de facto and de justo. Like in my primitive way of thinking, I would think that if you have the power, it doesn't matter about legitimacy. You just go there and you exert your your influence over something. But just the subtle nuances of paying respect and paying homage to an honorary figure, just like a puppet figure, it's fascinating. And before I started my, uh, basically, I come from a maths background. My undergrad was in maths. Okay. So uh, my MA, when I started doing humanities and history, uh, I just assumed that this kind of these fine distinctions between what is de facto power and what is official legitimate power these are things that are m- concerns to 20th century right, uh, right, right. kind of politicians yeah. and onwards yeah in 18th century or medieval uh, kind of a practitioner of political power would not be concerned yeah uh, real power would just legitimate itself basically mm. But I couldn't be any more wrong right, than right. that. I, I, so I've done a 180 okay. compared to what I initially thought. And Nader himself, he was very adept at uh, legitimating his takeover. Okay. And he did it step by step. I mean, Nader was a an avid uh, pro-Safavid uh, kind of agitator, if you will, right. uh, in his early career. Okay. I mean, he had to be. Yeah. Even though he, he took power and he was seeking to wrest more and more power from uh, the puppet king that he was serving. But, but why did he have to be? You said he had to be uh, an avid pro-Safavid. Why did he have to be? Because... Uh, legitimacy the, again? Uh, absolutely. And legitimacy is a very real... Uh, it mm. has truly real consequences. Like political weight, political currency. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there are so many sources that attest to the middle rank of the military, the middle ranks of the administration being pro-Safavid. You cannot command these ranks uh. when you uh, brazenly uh, offend their sense of what is politically and religiously right. Uh, right. Oh, of course, because you can't separate politics from the religion because Safavid, Shia, Imamat. Okay, 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 okay. So... Uh, that brings me on to another question. I have so many questions going through my head. But that brings me on to another question. When Nadir Khan, uh, Nadir Shah, Nadir Khan, Nadir Shah, let's call him, uh, he officially in- instituted an Afsharid dynasty, right? Or is that a, a figment of historical imagination as well? Uh, I think the correct term would be Nadirid. Uh, Afsharid okay. is, is very Muslim. I mean, they themselves hardly if ever use the term Afshirid and uh, a lot of their history uh, the chronicles uh, they speak of the Safavid Mm -hmm. uh, Dudman going away and the Nadirid uh, Dolata Nadiri uh, the Nadirid state taking over so they themselves uh, spoke of themselves as Nadirids so and that's what I've also so let's call them Nadirids. Did, did Nadir uh, instill uh, in his own self a sense of religious authority as well? Or was he not really a fan? Or did he not care about that? Well, in his personal life, we know that uh, he he had very uh, little respect or regard for religion. Okay. He was just not a very religious man at all. He, right. he constantly mocked it. But uh, publicly... And yeah, on publicly. the political sphere, yeah, yeah. very much so. I really? mean, he instituted uh, one of the most bizarre religious uh, policies. Yeah, I want to get into that as well. Yeah, yeah, Jafari Masab. Yeah, what he, is that? It's basically Nader's uh, cunning, um, but very see-through attempt to combine uh, Shiism with Sunnism in the hopes of basically. Uh, 
providing a legitimate uh, framework for his expansion into Sunni realms. Right. And he had also, by the time that he uh, put this policy into place, which is exactly uh, when he becomes king, mm -hmm. he demands that everyone present sign a document which attests to them accepting the Jafari Madhab. Now, he had a lot of Afghans already uh, incorporated into his armed forces. Yeah. And by the 1740s, the latter part of the empire, mm -hmm. the overwhelming majority of um, soldiers in his army were of non-Iranian, non-Shi'i uh, okay. background. Okay. So it was quite obvious that uh, you needed a new legitimate framework, the old Safavid Shi'i kind of uh was not going to work so it's much. not going to work when you're taking over okay uh you want a much more expansive broader uh palette to basically form up legitimate frameworks that makes sense but uh anytime i come across in historical texts or in historical context rather uh the the antagonism between sunni and shia I always see it through a cynical lens of present day agendas now i'm not i don't necessarily class myself as a conspiracy theorist but I, I i would assume and i think some intelligent people uh told me that a lot of the antagonism and the traditional lines of division between sunnis and shias are kind of uh brought out uh of like a modern context of shia versus sunni so my question being long rant over is how relevant was the fact that uh shia Saf or former Safavid, now Nadarid, uh, state was expanding into Sunni Afghanistan or Sunni, right. you know, northern Iraq or something like that. How, how, how aware would they have been that the Shia Persians are the others? Right. I, I would like to, first of all, say that there has been uh, a great deal of <coughs> uh, reading back into history right. modern-day prejudices mm -hmm, and modern-day mm -hmm. notions of identity That's what I was kind of and alluding to. Uh, identifying various groups as the other. Um, but with specific regard to the Sunni-Shi'i question, that is also not exempt from this. But during this period, it certainly was a factor, at least the Iranian sources. Okay. Uh, the people who identify as Iranian, which is in and of itself a very new uh, conception of identity. We need to get period, onto that as well, which yeah. Which we will come to. Yeah. But the Shi'is um, in Iran, clearly, after the Afghan invasion, saw themselves as being distinct from uh, Sunnis, which right. they were surrounded. The Iranian plateau is just surrounded by yeah. uh, Sunni populations. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it became one of the most important uh, factors uh, when they were formulating a new sense of identity. So religious identity was incredibly important. And for a long time, I mean, the Safavids, I mean, it was their religious identity that... Uh, differentiated yeah, them differenti from... I mean, they, they came to power through religious uh, arguments, you, mm. one could argue. I mean, uh, it was the Safavi order, right. first and foremost, right. and then the Safavid uh, Dudman or dynasty. Mm. So you keep using that word, by the way, which I, I don't think I've uh, heard before. Dudman? Dudman. Dudman would be very straightforwardly translated as uh, dynasty. And Dolat okay. would be the state. State. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Okay. That's interesting. Um, we never actually got to uh, the topic of Nadir Shah's tactical reforms. What kind of tactical reforms did right. he do? And I think on this, I would like to basically provide for the first time, maybe we should have done this from the start, a chronological kind of like okay. tour of yeah, what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah that so would be helpful. Basically, my, my point of start in my PhD is when the Afghans come to Iran uh, after having rebelled and kicked out uh, local Safavid authorities from So, 1722? Yes, seven, okay. the, the late 17... Uh, Tens. Tens and uh, the early 1720s is mm. when my PhD uh, kind of starts to deal with these issues. Okay. And back then, it was a story of complete military uh, weakness. From the Safavid uh, perspective. Okay. We see that time after time, 
much smaller, uh, more nimble uh, Afghan armies, cavalry armies mostly, coming in and utterly destroying a much larger uh, Safavid force. I mean, in the Battle of uh, Golan Abad, which was usually referred to as the uh, main battle mm -hmm. that uh, signaled the end of the Safavid Empire, uh, a, an Afghan force of 11,000 completely crush a much, much larger force of 50,000 Safavids, drawn from various uh, various provinces. Why? It seems... Because it couldn't have been technical progress, right? Safavids are usually called one of the three gunpowder empires. Which is, I, in my opinion, a misnomer in case of the Safavids. How come? Um, I mean, we can just look at how the battle turned out. It was mostly cavalry action, which okay. the Afghans seemed to have a, a great advantage in. But uh, there were also a number of cannon on the Iranian side, and they were they were not used at all. I mean, they didn't even get the opportunity to use them. It was not so much a limit on technology, but what was limiting the effectiveness of Safavid forces was just their tactical prowess. Bringing your firepower to bear. Mm -hmm. And this is what they utterly failed in. So you see time after time uh, being defeated by various nomadic factions, especially the Afghans who come in and uh, take over the majority of the Iranian plateau. And the Afghans, it seems a lot of our explanations uh, to regarding why this happened is to do with Safavid weakness rather than Afghan strength. Mm. And I think we should acknowledge that... The Afghan horsemen, they were onto something. They they okay. fashioned a new uh, cavalry military culture mm -hmm. that not only brought down the end of the Safavids, but also managed to defeat the Ottomans. This is something that's less talked about. So the Battle of Dandan, was it? I think so. When yeah. Ashraf, uh, yeah. Ashraf Afghan comes in and completely uh, uh, humiliates what's supposed to be a very easy very, very, you know, one-sided one -sided campaign from mm -hmm. the Ottomans. And the Ottomans uh, are forced militarily to acknowledge that the Afghans are uh, the true rulers of Iran at that point. Right. And uh, they sign a treaty and okay. they legitimate uh, Ashraf uh, in his rule over Persia. Right. The problem, it seems was that Iranians uh, were insistent that they should fight the Afghans on horseback, which is how most of their military history uh, had had just gone. I right. mean, uh, Ismail conquered uh, most of Iran on horseback, mm -hmm. uh, and his descendants had protected Iran's borders right. through that method of war. But what Nader did in Khorasan was say, let us forget about cavalry warfare. Mm-hmm. Why not introduce infantry? Okay. Now that we have muskets, flintlock muskets, mm. that are much more rapid firing than matchlocks and much more reliable. Those are like primitive rifles, kind of. These are very primitive kind of uh, rifles. Right. I mean, muskets aren't even rifles. They're, they're just a barrel okay. with uh, a trigger at one end mm -hmm. and uh, triggered by a flint, and it takes roughly half a minute to reload one so if you fire your musket uh, it, it will take another 30 to 40 seconds to okay. reload it this is a very primitive this is still and it, it's the case all throughout uh, Eurasia right, I mean, right, everyone right. is limited by how limited the uh, firearms really are but despite their limitations they find ways of disciplining the infantry to such an extent that it can take on head on Afghan cavalry charges. Right. And in a series of campaigns where all other Iranian armies had failed, Nader managed to succeed, first defeating Ashraf at Damgan or Mehmandust as it's now called, mm -hmm. and chasing him all the way back to Isfahan. Okay. And uh, after he takes back Isfahan, he puts Tahmasp on the throne mm -hmm. and uh, he chases the Afghans, what remains of the Afghans, to Farce, what is now Shiraz, and there, that's the end of the Afghan occupation okay. uh, of Iran. Right. But so Nader's uh, military uh, tactical reformations mainly revolve around infantry? 
mainly revolve around firearm infantry supported by artillery. I mean, that's okay. the main hitting power of this new model army. Right. Uh, really disciplined, really well-trained infantry, uh, muskets-bearing infantry, uh, supported by artillery. Mm -hmm. And the cavalry, uh, as opposed to most of uh, Iranian military history, is just a supporting arm in oh, most cases. Okay. That's really interesting. Okay. For, because for whatever reason, I mean, without reading too much into it, I had thought that Nader's uh, tactical reforms would have revolved around cavalry just because he comes from a Turkic kind of background, exactly. like steppe nomad type of background, and just the the rapidity, uh, the rapidness with which he, he uh, carried out his campaigns. I would have assumed that moving from one place to the other so quickly would have been on horseback. That's really interesting. On campaigns, yes. But when it came to fighting uh, at the actual battles, okay. you know, the bulk of the uh, army would dismount and fight as infantry. Okay. But the rapidity of the marches, especially the forced marches, yes, they required horses, and usually they required several horses. Right, 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 right. That makes sense. So each rider would have several at his disposal. So okay. when he rode his first horse to death, he could jump on the other one. That's, and do the same. That's incredible. That that must require that must have required incredible amounts of resources, and at the expense of the state. Because for the first time, um, Nader decrees that anyone who loses a horse, mm -hmm. the state will replace uh, his lost horse. What was it like before? Uh, before you brought your own horse and you had to take care of it. If you lost your horse, that was entirely your business. Okay. But under Nader, uh, what happens is the state takes an increasing role in not only supplying and uh, just outfitting its men, mm -hmm. but uh, replacing whatever they need at whatever time they need. So you so see more of a professionalization of the army. A centralization, yeah, okay. exactly. That's really interesting. Huh. One, uh, like an area of the world that I'm really interested in is the Caucasus. Kafkas yeah. area and I had always heard I haven't done like research into it myself so tell me how accurate this is but I had always heard that the only area that Nader uh, didn't prove successful militarily was around like Dagestan exactly yes the, against that the area. tribes primarily tribe. is that Abbas. true uh, yes, um, okay. and uh, one section of my chapter on military reforms and military affairs just revolves around uh, why he failed in no way can we get into that the Dagestani campaign was an incredibly brutal uh, campaign, and uh, no one would have guessed that it could have turned out as it did. I mean, uh, it was launched straight after Nader came back from uh, India and Central Asia. where What year were we talking, like 1740? So 1741 is when the oh, main okay. I campaign... Oh, okay. No, no, I mean, it dragged on until much later as well. Okay. This was... Uh, this was a chronic conflict that right. the empire got bogged down in mm. with huge expense and very imagine. little to show for it. Right. So after he comes back from Central Asia, he's he's basically Shahan Shah in a very literal sense. Shah of Abul Fais Khan, who's mm. in Central Asia, mm. and Shah of Muhammad Shah, who's mm. in uh, Mughal India. Mm. So no one would guess that going into Dagestan, right. a bunch of tribesmen uh, would not only not yield, but actually carry out a very remarkable uh, guerrilla campaign against ah, Nader's forces, okay. in which uh, he lost tens upon tens of thousands of men. Wow. Uh, God knows how much money. Okay. And he was forced to levy taxes uh, on the rest of Iran, that really caused a lot of not only perturbation in terms of the economic strength of Iran, but also political disquiet. I mean, a lot of revolts happened because of the financial pressures. And those were directly as a result of the military failures? Perhaps not directly, but okay. that was one of the major Contributory uh, contributing factor. factors to wow. just this need for money. And again, we shouldn't really be focused on Nadarid kind of weakness in the face of Dagestanis mm. as just how brilliantly the Dagestanis uh, managed to repel 
the invasion. So what was it? What what did the Dagestanis? Uh, am I saying it correctly? Are people from Dagestan are they called Dagestanis? Dagestani. I mean that's okay. the term that I use. I mean it's in the sources, but uh, okay. the, it's it's composed of various tribes, primarily the Lazgi tribes. Lazgi and the Avars, Avars who are yeah, okay, the main two uh, peoples uh, engaged in a really heroic struggle against what was uh, a remarkably brutal and savage uh, uh, invasion. Okay. It seems that the Nadarids, because they were so incensed that the Dagestanis would not submit to them, that the empire decided it had to take punitive uh, measures. To make like an example of them. To make uh, an example of them. And after a while, it seems that the ambushes and the guerrilla tactics, it really grated on the nerves of the uh, soldiery <coughs> as well. So the soldiers also became as incensed and angry uh, as their leaders. Okay. And they started doing uh, really atrocious, evil stuff. Just I mean, to the ordinary civilians. Absolutely. To okay. anyone they could get their hands on in that realm. Uh, there are examples of decrees sent by Nader to local uh, chieftains in the area where he, he basically calls for starving uh, starving various populations in the Caucasus. Okay. So it's, it's a campaign bordering on genocide. Okay. Uh, in a lot of ways. In one example, uh, a lot of Dagestanis, uh, this is a conquered uh, Dagestani town, uh, all of the men uh, were taken out, and and the young boys, and the old women, and the women that were left were basically systematically raped by the army. Uh, they set up what is, what could only be called as a rape camp. So... I don't want to get too uncomfortable, but let's go into that. What does that mean, systematically rape? Like, so you said, like a rape camp. So you have an area designated. You take the, the entire town. Yeah, the, you take the, the females there just for the purpose of raping them. Just for the. It's purpose. not some spontaneous burst of anger. It's just you. You could argue that it was born out of uh, right. anger, and they did stop uh, right. on the advice of actually an Afghan uh, general, who seemed to have taken a pity on the women. Uh, it's reported due to him also being Sunni, just because the Dagestanis were also right. Sunni. It wasn't Dawlat Khan, was it? Uh, I cannot remember okay, okay. or recall his uh, okay, okay. name, unfortunately. Right, right. But he interceded and he basically convinced uh, Nader that this would only uh, harden the resolve of the Dagestanis. That's pretty messed up. Yeah, I mean, the uh, imperialism that the Dagestanis suffered uh, from... Uh, Nader's empire mm -hmm. in the 1740s is one of the most egregious cases really? of Nader's imperialism. Okay. And, I mean, there are plenty of those cases, not least like Delhi, Delhi where yeah, he yeah. massacred tens of thousands of people after right. looting. Uh, it's just that area of the world. I mean, I'm a really, really big fan of MMA. And so, obviously, you have Khabib Nurmagomedov. <laughs> I've heard of him, yes. Right? And you have, like, loads of other uh, fighters coming from that region of the world, Dagestan, Chechnya, uh, Abkhazia, places like that. And uh, just... Toughness, I don't want to get too like dramatic and Bollywood here, but toughness seems to be ingrained into their personality. And I was just wondering like, uh, if their historical experience has kind of bred that into them. And I'm assuming the kind of egregious, as you put it, uh, experience that they had in the 1740s under Nadarid, um, the Nadarid state would kind of uh, back that up. But like what? So Dagestan is not that big of a place. You can barely even see it on a map. It's very small, very poor back in 1740. There was nothing to be gained by the empire by going and conquering it. Right. Okay. But it became a matter of, again, legitimacy. Yeah. You couldn't have this big, massive empire that had uh, humiliated and subjugated other empires lose from a bunch of that mountain tribesmen. It became sense. a matter of honor, especially so, since Ibrahim Khan, Nader's brother, right. had been killed by a, mm. a guerrilla band of Dagestanis, Lazgis in particular, right. uh, just a few years ago. So, so what could the Dagestanis do? So you mentioned guerrilla warfare. There, there's mountains in, uh, in... Oh, it's an extremely uh, mountainous uh, country, right. and it's, it becomes incredibly cold during winter. So but they didn't even like so you know the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviets in the 1980s. Right. So they would they would do a lot of stuff. But one of the things they would do is they would have Kalashnikovs or whatever kind of firearm that they could get their hands on, and in little bands they would be they would roam the the mountains, come down 
ambush somebody in a, uh, ambush a Soviet or a Afghan communist uh, army vehicle or something like that, and then run back to the uh, to the mountains. But they had Kalashnikovs. Now, obviously, they're fighting against superpower, which is you know it's a good job that uh, that they won in the end. But they had Kalashnikovs. Did the Dagestanis have like? Musket, muskets. Oh, the, they had what were they muskets just like the Iranians had. The, okay. There's nothing to suggest they were less technologically advanced than the empire. Uh, they were very much on par with one another. Okay. It's just the particular circumstances in Dagestan and the particular severity uh, of the campaign allowed for things that would be otherwise inconceivable. Like the Mughal states could not resist uh, Nader's invasion hmm. in the same way that the Dagestanis did. It's just a different, it's one conventional army against another. Right. And in Dagestan, what you have is a very clever, very cunning uh, system of war that is born out of Dagestani conventional weakness. They know whenever they go up in formed bands, mm. uh, in organized units, <coughs> and do a formal uh, fixed battle mm -hmm. with the uh, empire, they always lose. Right. So after a while, they resort to finding a battle and drawing the army in, mm. then finding a retreat Okay. Through a very difficult pass, what is usually a very difficult uh, and narrow pass. But, but their familiarity with the area kind of They're very familiar, them. and what, what is uh, important is that the majority of the Lazgi and Avar army is actually hidden away uh, in the forests and the, uh, the mountains around this very narrow, very difficult to traverse pass. Wow. So the Iranian units, they... They go in pursuit, and because it's such a narrow, restricted piece of topography, mm -hmm. they can't form up into organized units. Wow. So they lose their edge, because why are they so powerful? Because they're highly trained, highly disciplined wow. uh, soldiers taught to fight in units mm. as a team. When you can't do that, then it's... Uh, just a matter of just an individual against another individual mm. and the Avars and Dagestanis know the terrain right. they have the element of surprise and shock right. so they succeed in breaking up the discipline and the training of these Iranian armies that get, uh, that get let themselves get pushed into a pursuit right. an ill-advised pursuit and they pick them apart even some of the best units in the empire like mm. the uh Khorasani Jazayerchis these are some of the old units that served with Nader from the very beginning mm. of his career as a conqueror uh there are accounts of even these units being cut to pieces by uh Dagestani wow. uh, and Lazgi and Avar guerrilla warfare is so fascinating I remember when I was uh studying just the Vietnam War and just the tactics of the Viet Cong in general and it's fascinating from various perspectives, but the the psychological aspect of it, especially like in the Vietnam War, how the Viet Cong... Are you familiar with like the Viet Cong? Yes. Right? So the Viet Cong would not uh, let the American soldiers, young American conscripts, rest at night. They would just, you know, throw a random grenade without the purpose of, oh, this is going to be a pitched battle or we are even going to attack you, but just to prevent them from having a safe night's sleep. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and how that could, you know, uh, play on your mind and just take your peace of mind away. I mean, it's pretty difficult to maintain peace of mind in a war setting, nice. but to to make that even worse. And then as a result, as a consequence of that, you, you do things which you wouldn't normally do, like massacres, like rapes and things yeah. like that nature, which which just kind of shows to your opponents that you're dancing to my tune. Yeah, you know, like if in under normal circumstances you wouldn't rape somebody, but because of something that I did to you, and you rape someone, of course it's really bad that you raped someone, but it's me winning because I'm yeah, essentially making you, you know, you're losing the population to the gorilla space. A hundred percent, and it's yeah, it's I'm the one that's responsible for you doing something that you should you wouldn't be doing under normal circumstances. And it's remarkable even in the way that a lot of uh, Iranian chroniclers who were part of the military. There's one in particular called uh, Muhammad Qasim Marvi, uh, and he writes on the <coughs> guerrilla campaigns in Dagestan. 
and his ideas of why the Dagestanis wouldn't face them in open field is very reminiscent of how I've seen American officers uh, talk about why the Viet Cong could never win in a pitched battle against them. Okay. It's very focused on demeaning the guerrillas as cowards who could never fight like men. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's remarkable just uh, the kind of uh, excuses that uh, a big, much right. much more powerful conventionally force right, right. would come up with or rather the constituent officers would come up with hmm. as to why they lost and right. lost so terribly. Okay. And uh, it's it's actually the parallel is not unmerited. Like a big empire going into a terrain that yeah. they're not familiar with right, against right. Uh, people who are much poorer, hmm. uh, have much less uh, capacity to form armies and resist. But getting absolutely uh, humiliated in a series of conflicts that seem to lead nowhere. Right. Because the Nadirid Empire won a lot of pitched battles, but it led nowhere in Dagestan, mm -hmm. uh, which was incredibly frustrating for both the men imagine. and their leaders when it had given them so much success in India, in Central Asia, against the Ottomans. Mm. They just couldn't seem to impose their will in Dagestan whatsoever. Right. It's fascinating how you could see the overlaps in history. Right. Yeah. Like one of my favorite things to do in history is to try to look for themes. Right. And how what we just spoke about right now, 1960s, early 1970s, uh, Vietnam and 1740s, uh, Dagestan. Yeah. That's like, what is that? 220 years separated. But it's like more or less the exact same uh, preconditions. And yeah. they, they fight on the exact same purposes. Um, and same conditions, rather. And you could go back further in history and look at that as well. And you could just kind of see, I mean, there's the old adage, which is very popular, history repeats itself. But it just kind of goes to show like human nature and how it plays out in certain, how it plays out and how that could be the exact same thing, even if it's in different settings. Right. right? It's just like how humans just react to their stimulus. But getting away from like philosophy and psychology and stuff like that. Um <laughs> So not one thing that I've really been interested one thing that I'm really interested in general in history is individuals especially like great people great men um and when it comes to like great men I'm sure Nader Shah is like definitely considered as one right uh but in like the latter period in his reign towards the end of this, uh, his life in 1747 uh there is some like scholarly argument to suggest that he may have suffered from a mental illness is that correct uh, to say? Right. I mean, the most recent uh, biography uh, of Nader in the English language, Michael Axworthy's The Sword of uh, Persia, right. he certainly argues and makes a case for <coughs> Nader uh, having a mental breakdown of sorts or suffering severe mental degeneration okay. towards his last few years. Mm -hmm. But I, I personally find it somewhat unconvincing. Interesting. I mean, most of most of the argument relies on instances of uh, cruelty. But Nader was always cruel. Right. From, from the very beginning of his career. This yeah. isn't uh, a very uh, amenable and uh, lovely guy. He, yeah. he kills people and he, he enjoys it, it seems, at some point. Mm. But I think... The problem is, is that we obviously see the empire wrecked by a series of rebellions mm -hmm. and very quickly it collapses. And we need an argument to basically yeah. uh, explain how this happened. Yeah, right, right. Because it is remarkable. It is remarkable. The rise and fall such, of it. Yeah, it such, really is remarkable. Such a massive empire. Mm. Such a seemingly strong empire right. would just collapse In so just suddenly, of years, so, yeah. so violently. But I don't think any of the answers are to be found in seeking out uh, personality faults of a single individual. Right, okay. Nader was not even that important towards the end of his reign. I mean, the empire gets so big and huge that uh, one man isn't really the answer to any uh, broad historical question. I wouldn't imagine somebody uh, uh, like Nader Shah would have been a particularly good institutional institution builder 
Is that is that fair to say? Where did he get the institutions? Like, because you you am I correct in saying that uh, the the United State had decent, okay institutions, which gave it a sense of stability? It had remarkable uh, administrative, which is surprising. I right. would have thought, I mean, beginning my PhD, I thought, well, clearly this is a man who is a remarkable conqueror. Right, right, but, that's what I'm uh, thinking. Less than mediocre, even. Right, right. So where did, he, where, did he, where did he get that from? N- no, he was uh, absolutely uh, astonishing in, well, at least his government was uh, very remarkable in its efficiency. In Is that because just, they just kind of uh, continued the practices of the Safavids or did Nadir Shah kind of come up with innovations as they well? They largely uh, continued a lot of the practices, but when he became king, he, he pushed through a number of very <coughs> strange reforms. Right. I mean, he, f- for example, he, f- um, he uh, removed the post of... Uh, Vazir Azam, the okay. Grand Vizier. There right. is mo- no more Grand Vizier anymore, which is uh, surprising. But that would have been basically the second most powerful man in the yeah, empire. Yeah, the head of the administration, basically. Right, exactly. But the reason he does that is because he's largely uh, taken over his functions. I mean, Nader, we, we have various uh, accounts of him going through financial and fiscal documents for hours on end per each day. Wow. So, I mean, he learned how to read and write just so he could do this. this he didn't is, know how to read and write before that? No, no, he was uh, he was illiterate. I mean, no this way. is the son of a goat herder from Khorasan. I mean, uh, wow. very uh, his background is unremarkable. But uh, I knew it was unremarkable, but not that unremarkable. Okay. No, it, it truly was. Wow. Uh, nothing to be proud of. Okay. But his uh, energy mm. and uh, his dedication right. in sorting out the administrative uh, problems and administrative inefficiencies of the state were something that he should be applauded on. And also his Monsieur Mamalek, which is secretary-in-chief, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that do? What does he do? Uh, he was basically... The administrative body of the state is set up uh, by two great uh, institutions. Okay. One is the Daftar Khana, or if you will, the records office, okay. and the other is the epistolary office. What is the, um, it's c- usually called a secretariat. Okay. Um, is that the religion? Or no? no, no, no. It's, it's to do with all the documentation of the state, writing right. out all the documentation, of whether it's foreign treaties or... Uh, it be decrees or whatever. Mm. And the head of that is uh, called the Monsieur Mamalek, the right. chief secretary. Right. And that was his also his advisor and his chief historian as well, Astar okay. One of our main sources I've is the Tariqa Nader, mm. which is Tariqa Naderi is written by Astar Okay. And he, I think we should credit him with a lot of the political discourse that comes out of Nader's faction. It's clear that just from his authorship of all of these documents, whether they be uh, dispatches of victory or they be foreign correspondence, that he is the one man formulating this uh, uh, political discourse that right. Nader uses to take power and legitimate okay. his uh, power. So that's one example of a man, other than Nader, being very important in pushing through reforms and uh, making the empire a viable and expansive and powerful uh, political entity. Nader ha- was just uh, surrounded by so many talented. of his talented. Okay. I mean, it wasn't just a single talented man rises from Khorasan, okay. but rather a talented man is surrounded by other rather quite talented men who all excel in their respective fields, whether it be in military okay. uh, matters or in uh, administrative and political matters. It was very much a case of a new faction rising and then centralizing power okay. and uh, introducing a very efficient framework to exert control over the military and financial resources of the Iranian plateau, right. and then taking this power base uh, to Beyond. a much yeah, okay. uh, broader expanse in India, in Central Asia, in the Caucasus, and in Oman, 
so on and so forth. Oh, I didn't know, man. That's interesting. Uh, that brings me on to a question that I had. So you, I, I didn't know that so much uh, in terms of him being surrounded by so many talented people. So in 1747, Nadir Shah gets assassinated. Right. And as a result of that, you have the almost immediate disintegration of Afsh- uh, Nadirid uh, authority. I would argue that Is it correct? by the time he 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 gets killed, uh-huh. uh, the the empire has already disintegrated. Okay, so even so, before his death. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. um, this is the problem with Axworthy's uh, arguments as well. It also relies on Nader dying to explain the collapse. Okay. But when you read the sources, it's painfully clear that the empire has collapsed right. already. Okay. So why did it collapse? It seems so if it's not his mental illness, why did he right. collapse? Why did it collapse? It seems largely for the myriad reasons for why it succeeded. Um, one expansion. Uh, yeah, uh, such such a precipitous and rapid expansion mm. brought in a lot of new resources. Okay. Uh, one of those uh, resources, I just military resources okay so what you have is uh, a majority sunni army a majority non-iranian army right uh, after 1740 right right so okay. a lot of iranians who they thought in their own mind that they bled mm-hmm. and built this empire mm-hmm. uh, saw themselves as being disenfranchised um by their own state Okay. At a time when traditional enemies of the state, such as Afghans and what are usually referred to as Turani, right, which is like Central uh, Asians. Uh, it's it's not even Central Asian because it's the opposite of Irani in a lot of ways. I mean, oh, like been, the other. Yes, it is the perfect kind of category that you can lump in the other. That sounds very Shahnama like. Very uh, and right? a lot of the. Language and terminology is taken from the Shahnameh and okay. it develops into something that people form an identity around, which oh. is remarkable because it's not until the 18th century that people in Iran start speaking of themselves as Irani or Iranian. Yeah, see, that's really interesting because the other day when we met and you told me about that for the first time, this that was like the first time I had ever been exposed to that kind of thought. Because in my head, when I think of, you know, just a couple of cultures or a couple of nations, uh, countries that have historical, let's call it, precedence of knowing who they are, Iran is like literally the first one that comes to my head. Iran, China, maybe India, you know, Greece, you know, places like that. Um, But like when you said that, that the roots of the Iranian nation can be traced to the 18th century? The... At the very least, the roots of people identifying as Iranian. Okay, okay. But even even then, it's very much a process that elites and the upper sections of society are engaged in. We have no evidence to suggest peasants uh, just toiling the soil would have thought anything similar or right. anything at all with, with regards to identity. Even in the late 19th century, I think there are really uh, funny and amusing... Uh, encounters between European travelers and just the inhabitants of Iran. Um, and Rudy Mathi actually talked about it at some length. There were accounts of people saying, oh, we're part of Iran. I thought I was a subject of uh, England. That's Britain. hilarious. And uh, That's hilarious. <laughs> in Hamadan, uh, a European traveler just asks someone, <clears throat> um, by the way, why don't you have uh, Iranian currency? And the Hamadani guy says, I don't keep Iranian currency. Iranians are idiots. And then the <laughs> European traveler asks, but I thought you were Iranian. And yeah. he said, no, I'm Hamadani. I'm not, ah, which is yeah, really bizarre yeah, yeah, since yeah. Hamadan is almost smack bang. I mean, In the middle. slightly to the west, but it's traditionally held uh, as one of the most Iranian cities in right, Iran, right, like right. the capital of the Median Empire. And this idea that the people on the plateau mm. had a communal identity mm. that they all shared in. Mm-hmm. It's it's just bogus. It, okay. Iran is not an ancient nation state. No right. nation is an ancient nation right. state. These are all ideas that came about very recently. I mean, modernity, essentially. Yeah, yeah. 
These are not ancient ideas by any stretch. I do a uh, a Persian class here at SOAS, and uh, the teacher, um, she's a very cool lady. She told me something which like was incredible. She told me that I don't know how true this is. She told me that until Pahlavi Iran, right? So like Reza Shah, uh, his dad, that the dad and the son, that might have been the first time that Farsi was the dominant language in the country. Absolutely. Which is, I was like, what the hell? I that mean, sounds it was crazy. Much always the language of the states, but the overwhelming majority. Of, I mean, just the majority of um, the population. There's a lot of Turks, right? Turkish yeah. people. I mean, the majority of the population would not have even been settled. I mean, they would right, be right, right. semi-nomadic or nomadic in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, almost none of those spoke Persian as a mother tongue. So it what kind of languages would they be speaking? Uh, variants of Kurdish, whether it's uh, Kurmanji or Sorani or right. Kalhuri. Okay. Or... Very commonly, uh, Turkic um, would be very common. Okay. Even among settled populations, I mean, in Azerbaijan, right? Those Tabriz, Kazvin, yeah, uh, Ardabil, these would have uh, conversed first and foremost so in Azerbaijani Turkish. Because even if you go back through the chronology of uh, Iranian history and you look at the dynasties that ruled them, right? A lot of them had like Turkic roots, right? Yeah. Safavids were like from the Seljuks, right? A lot of them, Seljuks. almost all of them. Seljuks, then you had the Mongols, then you had Timur, then you had uh, Safavids, right? right? Or the the white, the white sheep and the black sheep. T- uh, Safavids, Nadir Shah. He's uh, he's basically a Turkoman kind of. Yeah, he is, uh, he is from uh, the northeast of the country. He's right? a Turk from Khorasan. That's crazy. But m- being multilingual uh. was nothing. Uh, strange. Right. I mean, Nader himself actually spoke Kurdish as well. It seems. No way. Which is, I mean, a lot of. Even Why would he need to speak Kurdish? Story, with all due respect to Kurdish. Um, the there were a lot of Kurds who were moved to Khorasan. Ah. Uh, I think sometime during the reign of Shah Abbas, perhaps earlier. Okay. But as basically a bulwark against Uzbek and nomadic invasions mm. from Central Asia. And uh, a lot of uh, his followers in the early days consisted of, and we're told this by a school historian, uh, from the Afshars, which are Turkic, always Turkic, like himself, and uh, Kurds. So there were a lot of Kurds in and around uh, Khorasan to begin with. And um, as an Iranian who spent part of his childhood in Iran, you, as a natural kind of uh, development, managed to... Pick up a couple of languages. Yeah, pick up uh, a language that is right. spoken locally. I didn't speak any Kurdish before I went to Kerman Shah, but after a few years of getting school there, I, pick I it picked up, up well. a little... Uh, even though none of us, none of our curriculum was ever taught in Kurdish, okay. no one in school ever talked uh, Kurdish, hmm. but spoke Kurdish, and it's just something that the official language is Persian, and local languages exist, and until very recently, were the first language, the primary language that uh, an inhabitant would learn. Right. So, I mean, even in the north, the settled population, Marzani, hmm. Gilaki, Talishi, right. these three languages were, would be spoken, not Persian. Right, right. In Azerbaijan, it would be Turkish. And in the southeast, uh, it would be Baluchi. Yeah. I mean, in the southwest, it would be Arabic. Wow, okay. So, Iran linguistically mm. was a much much more diverse uh, country there. and unfortunately it's it's as a natural consequence of becoming nation state like yeah almost all other nations. i'm grappling with that like thought more and more nowadays like the the more that we move into modernity or the, the more that we progress right the more we kind of lose the richness that you know the past kind of gave us in yeah. terms of you know the, the fluidity linguistic and cultural fluidity, yeah. you know what I mean? And I get it, like the more that a, that a state has to centralize itself to provide more and more resources for people, I get that, but it's like, it's at the cost of like, cost of like culture, and and as a consequence of that, that loss of, you know, the richness of culture, there's more of um, lines being drawn, I am me, I speak one language, I sound one way, I eat one way, I smell one way, and you are you. You're totally different to me. And I definitely see that in Afghanistan more and more now. Like, just overall, not 
sectarianism is to do with Sunni versus Shia, right? Well, mostly. Okay, but, but like it's more to do with, uh, in Afghanistan, it's more to do with ethnicity, right? Oh, so it's like Tajik. Pashtun versus Tajik. Exactly, kind of. Which, for the longest time, up until like the last 20, 30, 40 years, was not that big of uh, that big of a consequence. It's, um, uh, in many ways, it's a consequence of the modernizing urge of basically what I'm doing, my research on, which is the Musahiban royal family. It's around at the same time as the Pahlavis. 29 to 78 um, who kind of see the prospect of more and more of these uh, ethnic tensions of I am Pashtun, you're Tajik, you're different to me Um, and so as a way to uh, uh, circumnavigate that they focus on pre-Islamic story history. I see. Right? So because Pashtun history only goes back until the time of the Prophet because our ancestor and Pashtun uh, Qais Abdul Rashid apparently went to Mecca he met the Prophet there converted with all due respect to any Pashtuns who believe in that I'm pretty sure that that's just another attempt to connect Pashtuns to Islam um, so if you if you take Afghan history and the uh, Afghan royal family was Pashtun and the do- that's the dominant ethnicity in terms of numbers and everything uh, if you take the uh, Afghan history beyond Islam then you take it out of the, the the hands of the Pashtuns as well. So then yeah. the other ethnicities don't have to feel ostracized, let's say, about the prospect of taking glory in something which wasn't necessarily theirs. Because up until that point, a lot of Afghan history would revolve around the Pashtun uh, dynasties in India, right? Like the Lodis um, who uh, Babur defeated to set up the Mughal Empire, uh, the Suris who basically kicked out Humayun, Babur's son, um, and even the Hutakis, who kind of yeah. pushed into Safavid uh, Persia. But now, if you take it back to pre-Islamic history, it's focusing more on Aryan, Ariana, which I get that dude with the crazy mustache in Germany kind of messed up that whole name for everybody. <laughs> but uh, that wasn't seen as such a bad thing, Ariana. Um, but it's like this, talking about like Iran, and this is why I was so interested to talk to you about uh, nationalism in Iran as well, because uh, with the book that I'm reading at the moment it's by the foremost historian of the period about pre-Islamic history. And he talks, and the book is called Afghanistan, Dar Shahnama. <clears throat> so Afghanistan in the Shahnama, the, uh, what did you call it? The epic, the epic poem. The epic book of kings, Shahnama. Right, yeah. of uh, Ferdowsi, which uh, a lot of people say like uh, Iranian identity is kind of based on it a little bit. I would, I would make the case that I think yes. Right. I mean, so much of the terminology, at the very least, mm. is derived uh, from the Shahnameh epic. And right. it's largely as a consequence, I think, of the Mongols and the Ilkhans, their successors, giving such a great precedence to uh, Shahnameh as a literary kind of a, okay. a binding kind of state, almost, document. Ah. That uh, everyone since then just used Shahnameh. Uh, even the uh, the Sultanate of Rum, mm. the Seljuks, uh, mm. the Seljuks in uh, Anatolia, of course. they gave a lot of their uh, sons and successors names taken from the Shahnameh. Ah. It became a the language of political discourse. Right. It was entrenched and enriched by terms and motifs taken from the Shahnameh. Okay. So uh, not only in what is now, what has become the national identity of Iran, but I feel a lot of uh, the polities, uh, until very recently, derived a lot of their identity mm. and uh, their motifs from the Shahnameh. Even in Central Asia now, they speak really? of themselves as the sons of Afrasiab ah. and they're Turani and it's just... It's so, yeah, it's interesting. Like even the book that I was just mentioning, Afghanistan Dar Shahnama, uh, the, the writer's name, Ahmad Ali Kozad, who's interestingly enough, a uh, Kizilbash. Ah, I see. Do you know how Kizilbash got into Afghanistan? Uh, no, my understanding is that the, the term evolved to refer to Shi'is in right. Afghanistan. Is that correct? Uh Kind of no, but it's like it's the Kizilbash in, in in Iran as well, right? The Kizilbash didn't they have like uh, the yeah the the red the helmets enwrapped in a red helmet, right? Would would they so they're not the same as the Safavids, are they? Um, initially no, no. okay, um, okay, but later on, 
Kizilbash for the Safavids became the identifier of what they were. They would oh. always refer to themselves as Kizilbash. Right. And later in the 18th century, it uh. becomes uh, locked with Irani. And oh. that's when we see uh, increasingly the term Irani replace Kizilbash or be used in tandem oh, uh, with it. Okay. So that's how like the Kizilbash got to, because they mainly live around like the big cities, Kandahar and Kabul, is Nadir Shah actually brought them with him oh, from Iran to act as basically administrators. And then from that point onwards, basically the last 250 years of Afghan history, up until about 40 years ago when everything changed, uh, thanks to the communists, <laughs> was uh, sent, the state was administered by Kizilbash because they had had a history and a tradition of administration, I'm assuming under the Safavids as well, and a little bit the Afsharids, uh, the Nadirids, as you like to say. Um, so this guy was a Kizilbash. And obviously, if you kind of come from that kind of a background, you're naturally going to be a little bit more predisposed to a higher standard of, of living. So this guy, Ahmad Ali Khozad, had a uh, much better education as well. Like the first modern schools that kind of sprout out in the beginning of the 20th century, he goes to those ones, like French educated ones. Um, so in, in that, the great bulk of the argument that he's trying to make is he's trying to appropriate a lot of the glories and nitpick parts of the Shahnama, which he can appropriate and glorify modern day Afghanistan or 1950s, 1960s Afghanistan, right? So like oh, Rustam, Rustam's mom, Right. Was the daughter or the wife of the ruler of Kabulistan. So he ah. says, Kabulistan, we have a city called Kabul. Uh, it was that area. It was Kabul, yeah. this Kabul. And he goes, he's Afghan, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it's not in so such polemic terms. But there's one really interesting line where he mentions that, uh, uh, unfortunately, in the present day, some states, he's talking about Iran, um, have take uh, he's basically being a hypocrite to be honest but he's saying have appropriated the glory of uh this area known as greater iran he likes to call it yeah. irani shahar i think um and made it for themselves he's obviously referring to persia changing his, their name so to iran, iran in 1935 but it's like just how it is so interesting this is why i decided to do my thesis on this is that the past is being not to sound too militant but weaponized you know like instrumentalized yeah. to serve the purposes of the present. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And as much as, I mean, of course, it depends on for what purposes you do that for, but that makes history so much more dynamic than just reading a couple of bloody facts on a piece of paper. <laughs> you know what I mean? And using some big words just to look smart. You know, because in Afghanistan, and I'm sure uh, in Pahlavi Iran, because I've got to do some cross-analysis um, a little bit, it was a little bit like this, but it's literally state-sponsored so these historians, Ahmad Ali Khozad, is literally deciding, at least officially, I don't know how much, I need to figure out exactly how much villagers cared about this, about Ariana and things like Bactria. But officially, it's historians that are determining what Afghan uh, identity looks like. And there is a very huge drive, as much as a poor country like Afghanistan can do, for historians like Ahmad Ali Khozad to write material then they could just send off to the outside world so then they the outside world's vision of Afghanistan could be formed through an Afghans that's like what, why I always remember when I would tell people oh yeah I'm from Afghanistan people the first thing people would always say to me oh you got such an old country 5,000 years 5,000 years would just be like a buzzword you know like I'm thinking to myself how the hell did they get that figure 5,000 years where does that go that's before Zarathustra Zoroastra and everything but a big reason for that is because, I'm sure it's trickle-down knowledge, was because of some of these historians that kind of published these works and sent them out to the outside world. You know what I mean? So it's like really interesting how you can just instrumentalize history to serve the, the present. But yeah. the Safavids, at least I know that they did this as well. Really? I mean, t towards the latter part of the Safavid uh, <coughs> period, there were always reimaginings of the founder of the order, hmm. the uh, Sheikh Safiuddin. Right. Uh, okay. So I think a lot of dynasties, um, always human beings in general, I think, hmm. have a tendency to go back retrospectively and superimpose modern day hmm. uh, 
uh, values and modern day identities right. according to what they need currently yeah. onto historical processes and historical figures and people. Um, it's it's much more prolific after n- nation states. Right. Get th- formed. It's it's it's, it's more to do with like systematic way. Systematic. It's way more to do with like the expansion of centralized authority. Right. Precisely. Right. Precisely. Yeah. Because before, if somebody writes a history of a dynasty, how many people are going to read that in the 14th century? Very few. But now, you could do it through the education system, whereas everybody knows about something. That's why all of these uh, identities, they try to encapsulate everyone who lives in the modern nation state Mm. under a similar identity. Because it's the central authority wanting to put uh, an equal distribution of power across all of its subjects. Right. So... It's it inevitably has to massage facts and uh, even fabricate and do whatever it needs to make a very neat narrative into which all the people in within the borders fit into. Right, exactly. Yeah, so that's why. Yeah, I think nationalism, as much as it can lead to, you know crazy people with weird mustaches uh, doing really, really bad stuff to people, it could definitely serve a purpose in some parts of the world that need kind of like a collectivizing urge. Now, of course, there's there's like loads of things to take into consideration of how strong is that collectivizing urge. If I don't like that collectivizing urge, can I argue against it a little bit or am I going to be put in prison or, you know, removed out the question? That's, you know things uh, to to worry about but i think there definitely can be uses for like nationalism you know the world's a crazy place people need answers absolutely but anyway before we get down too much of a philosophical rabbit hole uh i think uh, we can uh, safely end it there i want to thank you parsa my uh, uh very uh, honorable guest thank you for coming on and you know sharing your knowledge with us that was uh that was very awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, that's great. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this as much as I did, and I hope you guys learned as much as I did. Um, thank you for joining us. This is only the second episode of this podcast. So if you guys have any you know, tips for how we can potentially improve this, please let me know. Uh, you know, Just contact me on uh, Instagram or something like that. Just DM me. That's no worries. But other than that, I should see you very soon with another guest. Peace.